This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This to me is like the really fascinating material. I don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly grew Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind-blowing. Welcome to Conspiranormal, everybody. It's good to be back. We've got Rob in the house. Yo, yo, it's still my birthday, but this is the first show you've heard that's my birthday, and the next show will also be my birthday. Yes, it's Rob's birthday for the next two weeks. Yeah, I think we figured fun. out that math. <laughs> it's, it's weird a how that works. fortnight of birthdays. Yeah, isn't it great? You, you must have, like, that's a long time for your mom to be in labor. I, yeah, God bless her. It's like, it's like a mini Ramadan of your birthday. <laughs> and we've, we've got, uh, as you hear, Dr. Future is here. Oh, really? I can't wait to meet him. Yeah. He's a good guy, you know, so I hear. Yeah. Well, we're going to find out. Yep. And Surfiel. Yes. And Surfiel, you're, you're pumped for this one. This was yeah, a I'm guest that you found, found out about, and I am pumped about this one as well. Because we're going to talk about a subject tonight that uh, Dr. Future here has also studied, and that is the Sovereign Military Order of the Knights of Malta. And on the line, we have Recluse, who does the VSUP blog. Recluse, welcome to Conspiranormal. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Um, you know, Serfiel heard you on another podcast. He turned me on to it. I listened to that show, and I was immediately uh, was like, we got to get this guy on because you have a wealth of knowledge about the subject and among other uh, things as well. And like I said, uh, my good friend, Dr. Future, Mike Bennett, he's also studied this pretty uh, significantly over the last few years. So... 
I'd just like to get a little bit of background on you and your blog and how you became interested in this kind of like esoteric subject that not a lot of people know about. Uh, well, it, uh, I started the blog back in 2010. Um, I kind of been brought up somewhat in a household that was pretty friendly to more conspiratorial uh, thoughts. I can remember kind of listening to William Cooper with my dad, uh, gosh, probably back in like 94 or something like that when I was around 12 years old. So my father um, was definitely kind of into this type of stuff. I mean, not anywhere to the extent that I was, but it was kind of omnipresent. And then also being a child of the 90s, of course, I kind of grew up with the X-Files and what have you. Um, And then I just really kind of drifted into it because I've always had a keen interest in history. And in a lot of ways, I really view myself as a historian more than anything. Yeah, that's what really appealed to me about your blog is the historical um, aspect to it, because I, I consider myself kind of an amateur historian as well. And I mean, I've, I've always been really into it. Um, let's, so let's get into this about the Sovereign Military Order of the Knights of Malta. Like I said, this is something that a lot of people don't know about. And let's kind of go through who they are and kind of when they were founded, because this goes way, way back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the origins uh, can actually be traced almost back to the 7th century with a hospital that was established uh, in Jerusalem in that time. It was later destroyed uh, by the Caliph uh, al-Hakim, I believe, in the early 11th century. And then it was uh, rebuilt by the uh, Benedictine Order shortly thereafter. And then uh, what we would now kind of consider to be the Knights Hospitaller, which are the predecessors to the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, kind of came to being in 1018 uh, by the um, hand, essentially, of the Benedictian brother, Blessed Gerard, who had come to the area with a lot of the crusading knights at the time. So, I mean, it was a very, very, you know, ancient order. Um, I always kind of find it interesting when you see a lot of the discussions about the Knights of Malta, how they're usually considered to be, say, pawns of the Jesuits, the Masons. But, I mean, they really predated these societies by several centuries, even if you're going by the very earliest records of them. So they are, why, so they have a kind of an interesting history, because they they switch places a lot. Um, They start off in the Holy Land. So what's kind of like their course of their history, like where they go and where do they eventually end up? Well, they started, as you said, in the Holy Land. And um, one of the interesting aspects of that that I just kind of started to pick uh, pick up on is um, some of the areas they've settled in, I mean, have some very fascinating histories, of course. Um, You know, that's rather obvious in the Holy Land. Uh, and also, they had quite an extensive presence in Syria at the time as well, which was, you know, really awash with a lot of um, Gnostic and, um, you know, other kind of mystical orders at the time. Of course, there's the well-known Nazaria and what have you, the uh, Harian Sabans and whatnot. But, you know, uh, one of the more interesting things I just kind of realized about the Knights of Malta is at one point in time, they were in possession of territories uh, had included two of the uh, wonders, uh, so two of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, one of them was the mausoleum at uh, Helicarnassus, which they took possession of in around the 15th century and had built a really? uh, fortress there out of the ruins of it. And then, of course, they famously uh, were the Knights of Rhodes for a while, which, of course, had the Colossus of Rhodes at one point. And 
uh, this would have been after they were expelled from the Holy Lands. They end up in Rhodes and Cyprus for a time there, and then kind of going into the Renaissance, they're expelled from there. And they end up in Malta, which has an extremely interesting history. Uh, it's actually the site of one of the oldest civilizations in the world. There are some very ancient megalithic structures that were built there between 5,000 and uh, 22,000 B.C., or 2,200 B.C., excuse me. And the thing that's interesting about that is they most likely, in many cases, had predated Stonehenge and the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza. These would have been roughly concurrent with uh, some of the ziggurats in Babylon and uh, maybe even going further back to the Sumerians. And the people that built these uh, megaliths are... We know very little about them. They just kind of suddenly disappeared, uh, I believe, around 2000 B.C., and there's not really a lot in recorded history for them. But interestingly, a lot of the myths uh, passed down about them describe them as a race of giants. And there have also been uh, an extensive network of catacombs that were found at Malta, too, that believed to have at least dated back to Roman times. So there's kind of, uh, I guess, a Lovecraftian air, if you will, to the island of Malta and uh, some of these ancient structures there and this kind of mysterious peoples that built them that very, very little is known about. So they, I think what they end up, they go to Rhodes, I think around, is it 1526, the the Turks expel them from there. Yes, yes, yes. And they end up in Malta. And I guess, was it a donation by, was it a Habsburg king, I guess? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And so they're in Malta for, what is it, like 200-something years? It was about uh, close to 300 years. They lost possession of Malta, um, I believe, right at the turn of the 19th century when, uh, you know, the whole Napoleonic era. Uh, And then they ended up, after some, uh, I guess, a few years of being homeless and some internal strife in Rome, though... There were some members that uh, ended up going to Russia, to St. Petersburg, and that uh, sort of factored into the mythos of uh, a sort of heretical offshoot branch of the Knights of Malta in the United States, known as the uh, Sovereign Order of St. John, that appear in a lot of curious circumstances in the 20th century as well. I mean, there's probably, it's most likely that they weren't directly related to the Russian branch of the Knights of Malta, but they've claimed descent from the Russian branch for many years now. Was this the one that was founded like 1905, incorporated in America? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I believe around 1905, or allegedly it was founded in 1905, I should say. I don't believe there were any actual records that have been found of it until um, the 1950s when it was incorporated by uh, the longtime grandmaster Charles Pitchell. Right. Why do they end up leaving Malta? Uh, I believe essentially because they were defeated by, um, I believe, the Turks, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. But I believe they were militarily expelled from there, and uh, that was the brief period of time where they were trying to figure out where they were going to end up. You're saying from Malta? They're Mal- they, bl- they, they left Malta because uh, Napoleon showed up. That's okay. And, yes, and yes, he yes. cut a deal. Napoleon cut a deal with the guy who was like sort of their leader was, uh, well, he was an underachiever. And they were really upset with him. And he had not done very well. And he cut some kind of faith saving deal. 
and none of the other knights really got to approve it, but suddenly they were out of job. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. that's where most of them took off, like towards St. Petersburg, you know, and a, a small group went over toward Rome, you know, for tutelage, but the bulk of them went to St. Petersburg, I understand. Yes, 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 you're correct. Um, yeah, I was confusing that with the Rose incident for a minute there, but yes, right. you're right. And then they had also incurred quite a, a considerable amount of debt in the 18th century as well, which uh, left them fairly destitute by that time as well. And there weren't enough Muslims to pillage. I mean, they were pi- <laughs> they were pirates, and basically yes, yes. they were they, they were, were pirates of the high seas, and uh, by stealing things is how they made their money. Yes, they were really the preeminent naval power in the Mediterranean there for yes, several centuries, really. So they leave Malta, and I guess that they end up well, part of them ends up in Rome which I think is more where we kind of get the more kind of like modern version of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's kind of effectively when they became more the sovereign military order of Malta and allegedly became more of a charitable organization. <laughs> and so now, currently, they they kind of have like this extraterritorial status, that they're, they're, they're really their own country, essentially. Yes, yes, they get to issue their own passports and so forth, yes. And they're based inside the Vatican? Um, I don't know. If, no, Vatican they have their own city. city yeah, they have their own city oh. block. Yeah, yeah, and yes, it's sovereign right. territory. If you get on that turf, nobody, Interpol, nobody can get you. And in fact, one of the key things, <laughs> this is the thing that's very interesting about Knights of Malta, is because they have special status with the UN, they have diplomatic pouches, which nobody can look, look in. Anytime you're a diplomat from a country... No one can look to see what you bring in the country in a diplomatic pouch. And so a Knight of Malta can go wherever they want and carry it in there, and not a single person could put a finger on it. Single country. That's kind of one of the thinking, you know, behind why they would be recruited so heavily by intelligence agencies. Because like he's saying, they've got the ability to transfer messages, I mean, through these diplomatic pouches that nobody can get their eyes on. That's almost like why there's so much strange, secretive stuff that happens a lot of times on on uh, Native American reservations because there's that sovereignty allows yeah, yeah. for yeah loopholes. Yeah, we talked about that with the whole Inslaw scandal and the Promise software and all that Danny Casalero stuff. Yeah. Uh, now, what is their link to the Knights Templar? Well, there's, I mean, obviously a lot of theories about that. Uh, both organizations originated in the Holy Land at roughly the same time. I mean, there was something of a rivalry between them to some extent. Um, I generally tend to feel that they were much more antagonistic towards one another than a lot of um, alternative researchers tend to think, especially when you look at the suppression of the Templars, the one organization that really benefited tremendously from it. Uh, besides the Vatican, was the uh, Knights of Malta who ended up with many of the Templars, uh, right. a lot of their holdings and what have you. So it was quite a, a boon for the uh, Maltese Knights from an economic standpoint, if nothing else, and it uh, really suppressed their chief rival at the time. So were they probably involved in, with the King of France and the Pope in getting rid of the, the Knights Templar? I think it's quite possible, yes. I mean, at a minimum, I think they probably opted to look the other way on that one. 
Well, uh, one of the things, if I could add, you're talking about their opposition. Since I, I'm finishing a book series now on holy wars, and I spent a while writing on the Crusades. Uh, and uh, by the end of the Crusades, it got so bad and convoluted, like most holy wars, that you, you had the Knights of Malta there in the Levant fighting the Knights Templar. They were both being funded by the um, Italian merchant states of Venice and uh, what was the other one there? Um, Milan. They both were, were fighting for property on behalf of the Italian merchant states, fighting each other, and then they both subcontracted out their fighting to Muslims. So you had Muslims fighting each other in the Levant, being paid by Knights of Malta and Knights Templar because of business merchants. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some things never change. <laughs> And through the through the Templar as well. I mean, you mentioned like a link to the assassins and uh, to some of the Gnostic cults. Now, do they have kind of a uh, do they? Do you think they have some kind of like Gnostic, like secret Gnostic tradition? I mean, it's quite possible. Um, there's been a lot of speculation about that over the years. Um, obviously, a lot of people have tried to unearth, I mean, some kind of secretive doctrine within the uh, Maltese Knights. And there's generally been the opinion that none existed. So I tend to think that it was more something that was pursued by individuals, maybe even certain cliques within the Maltese Knights, rather than there being a a formal doctrine that everybody is somehow initiated into over various points in time of their, you know, time in the Maltese nights. I've gotten the impression uh, through some of your work that you think they might have more of a, a suppressive role acting on behalf of the church for a lot of heresies or esoteric doctrines and things like that. Like if they absorb things from the Templars, then yeah, kind yes. of... well, certainly, I mean, yeah, I mean, you kind of see them, I mean, effectively, because again, a lot of the, or not a lot, but I mean, more than a few of the Templar Knights ended up going into the Knights of Malta after the suppression, and they, you know, compensated a lot of the properties and what have you. Uh, another interesting order that they kind of consumed in, oh gosh, I think it was the 19th century, was the uh, Brotherhood of St. Anthony, if I remember correctly, which there's... This was kind of a monastic order that had uh, dated back to, I believe, the late Middle Ages, and there was some theories that this order might have um, used some kind of, um, you know, psychedelic substance or something like that. And this was a group that the Maltese Knights ended up taking over um, in, the, I believe, the 19th century, and then there were several prominent, I mean, grandmasters who were alchemists and whatnot, I mean, especially, um, was it... Uh, Pinto de Fronsac, I believe it is pronounced, and then there was also a member of the uh, Medici family as well, Antonio. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of the evidence that they were interested in pursuing these kind of arcane doctrines, and I think the possessions that they had within, you know, Rhodes and Malta itself, I mean, also they would have been obviously in a position to study a lot of these, you know, really incredible megalithic sites and ritual centers in the ancient world, uh, I mean, unfettered in some cases for hundreds of years. <clears throat> you know, since you... Time when obviously... Go ahead, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you, I'm sorry. Uh, since you're on that topic, and I, you may, you're probably well aware of this, but I just thought I'd mention it. One of the things that came up, it, it, this whole topic is just an aside on a bigger 
scope of writing that I'm doing, but it sort of came up because it's going on today with some things. But uh, one of the areas in that vein I came across was a book called The Masonic Magician, uh, and it's about... Cal- oh, yes, Cagliostro, yes, yes. I actually just bought a copy of that, uh, well, ironically enough. Well, it's very interesting because it goes through the records when he was interrogated during the French Revolution and the I think the affair of the Pearl Necklace when, yeah. when he was involved mm-hmm. in that. And his um, testifying and other documents that he got a hold of uh, that, that they submitted in the record and were in the newspapers then sh- show that he was trained into ancient Jewish magic by Grand Master Pinto and that he had connections directly to Malta, Cagliostro, which for some listeners are not familiar, he is probably one of the most notorious of all magician sorcerer types in recorded history and one that's a legitimate. So so many are so shrouded in legend like Count St. Germain and others. This guy was a real guy that did real things and it was recorded and documented. Um, and it there's even some evidence that, that Pinto may have been his dad and that had yeah, birthed yeah. him and... But, um, I believe in some accounts the father of the uh, man that initiated uh, Cagliostro into the uh, this kind of esoteric stuff in the first place. Well, they they yeah, actually just, yeah they had a lab they actually had a lab in Malta for this kind of magic, and Cagliostro had a guy that went around. His name was I think was Althosis. He was almost like the yeah. um, how how would you describe him Gandalf kind of colleague you know a mysterious shaman guy that knew the ancient world and and they all sort of helped Cagliostro learn a lot of these things but I have now since become of a belief from other studies that Jewish magic is is the real deal and it's still being practiced today openly in the press in Israel today uh, you know uh, amulets and spells and all this kind of stuff and it's talked about in the mainstream press and and what they did, I think, probably Freemasonry and a lot of these esoteric arts were built just on the foundation of Jewish magic, which a lot of that came from Babylon. Babylon, yes, yes, I was about to say, but, yes. But I thought Cagliostro and his I mean, connection is amazing, the Knights of Malta. No, I mean, it definitely is. And then, um, kind of on that note, you're saying um, Cagliostro is, of course, who is generally credited with establishing the Egyptian rite. Right. And uh, Freemasonry, which was later um, adapted as the right of uh, Mizraim, I believe it's pronounced, and then became a part of the right of Memphis and Mizraim, which is, um, you know, that's a very esoteric branch of Freemasonry that's generally the practitioners of which are primarily concerned with ritual magic. And then later on, uh, the right of Memphis and Mizraim became a big part of Martinism, and mm-hmm. apparently, especially uh, Cagliostro's mm-hmm. Egyptian rite was used very prominently in the earliest stages of Martinism. And Martinism has kind of an interesting history with the Knights of Malta uh, in the more uh, current era through the organization known as the Panay Circle, or I believe Le Cercle, or something as it's pronounced. Um, mm-hmm. But this was a far right-wing network uh, in Europe that kind of came to be in the uh, 1950s that you could kind of say was in a way the international rights answer to Bilderberg. And the Knights of Malta were a major presence in this, along with Opus Dei, but there was also uh, a kind of undercurrent of Martinists and Synarchists that were involved with this organization as well. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting that you can go back to, you know, this time, the 17th century, 
with the meeting with Cagliostro between Pinto and so forth, and uh, mm-hmm. what kind of laid the foundation for what became Martinism, and trace it all the way forward to the modern era. You know, you're talking about ritual magic. I think if that is embedded within Freemasonry, you'd almost have to call that practical Freemasonry as opposed to speculative Freemasonry. In the same way, in Jewish magic, you have the speculative Kabbalah, which would be very similar to speculative Freemasonry, and then you have practical Kabbalah, which is actually the casting of spells and you know altering reality and those kind of things like that. But yes, but, that's yeah. a good way to put it, certainly. But it, but it always seemed like to me that the Knights of Malta always sort of seemed like the special forces of the Roman Church, whereas the Jesuits were more the CIA. And the, you know, the, the Jesuits behind the scenes were gathering intelligence, provoking, doing things without having like a big face-to-face confrontation, but actually make, still, you know, making things happen like gunpowder plots and things like that. But the Knights of Malta were willing to roll up their sleeves and really have rumbles. And they became, they became so, basically, the hard-right fascist part of Catholicism and the Catholic part of what I would say is the, the religious right today. And, you know, of course, Gladio, I'm sure you've, you know, documented their kind of involvement in that and the, yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah, rat lines yeah. and all that kind of thing. And then, basically, when they had no more fun to have in Europe, they took off to South and Central America you know, so, to overthrow some other governments like that. So um, it, it really is fascinating to me, the mindset of these people and people who say they're following God. As, as someone who follows God myself, I'm, I, I marvel at how they can justify these kind of activities. But if you think you're bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth today, I guess the uh, ends justifies the means in their eyes. Well, so that, yes, absolutely. That, that's a good segue. So they were always involved in these political intrigues in after the crusade times in the Holy Roman empire. And then this role, uh, was, uh, transferred into modern times where they have become in, involved in all these political intrigues in these modern nation states. And they have a continued role. And you've really researched that, especially in the cold war. Yes. Yes. Well, they, I mean, kind of an instrument. of the kind of far right-wing international, I suppose you would call it really the fascist international that emerged uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War. And um, there were a lot of different organizations that comprised this network, but um, probably the three primary ones for a lot of years were the organization I just mentioned, the Panay Circle, uh, which was based out of Europe. Uh, there was the American Security Council in the United States, and then there was the uh, World Inter- World Anti-Communist League, which was kind of the international uh, wing of this, though it was especially predominant. Uh, it had an especially high contingent of members from Eastern Asia and um, Latin America. And the Knights, I mean, were a huge role in the Panay Circle, and they really seemed to have been uh, the crucial liaisons to the American wing of this network. I mean, you see figures like Vernon Walters and James Jesus Anglican, who were big mm-hmm. figures in the American Security Council that also had ties to these um, their European counterparts. And then more broadly speaking, you had a lot of these uh, Maltese Knights also involved in the World Anti-Communist League, which was 
an organization that was really heavily involved in Operation Condor in Latin America in the 70s, which was um, kind of the counterpart to Gladio, which was active in Europe, in which the Panay Circle was very predominantly involved in. And that's also something that I should probably point out that really distinguishes these groups from I guess organizations like Bilderberger or the Council on Foreign Relations, that they were in many cases full-blown private intelligence networks, even you know almost paramilitary networks, and uh, they very much you know went out into these you know rough countries and uh, did some very very bloody things there. I mean, really doing a lot of the dirty work uh, for the United States, the American Empire uh, during this era. What was their connection to, like, P2, Propaganda Duo? Well, in the case of Propaganda Duo, uh, here the number two member in P2 was actually a member of the Knights of Malta, and he was generally thought to have been, I believe it was Umberto, if I remember correctly. Yes, Umberto Ortolanio. I'm probably totally butchering the pronunciation of that. <laughs> the best I can do. But uh, he was the one who actually brought um, Gelly, the uh, official Grand Master of P2, into the uh, Knights of Malta. And also, they um, got a lot of support from the longtime Italian Prime Minister, um, Andrade And also, uh, General Alexander Haig was a big proponent of really? uh, Gelly initiating P2. And Haig was also a member of the Solar Military Order of Malta. As was, uh, as really. So there were definitely a lot of major, uh, you know, Maltese knights involved in the creation of P2, and eventually Gelly himself was brought into it. Now, was Gelly the one that was, that they found hanging from the bridge? Was that him? No, 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 no. That was God's banker, Roberto Calvia. That's right. That's right. (laughs) I get those guys confused. Well, that, that brings me to another question, though. I mean, is there a connection to these guys and the death of John Paul I? Uh, yes, I think that that would most likely be the case. Um, I definitely think that uh, the Knights of Malta and Opus Dei, uh, certainly they gained a lot from the death of the first John Paul, and they really received a lot of patronage from the second John Paul when he came to power. Um, it also incidentally resulted in a major crackdown on the Jesuits um, and led to their grand, or they're not grandmaster, whatever they're, um, like uh, the you know, Pope? the leader of the, yes, <laughs> the black Pope, whatever you want to call him, mm-hmm. was expelled and essentially um, somebody that John Paul II uh, wanted, who was approved by the Maltese Knights, was put into power. And now, ironically, things have kind of come full circle with the uh, Jesuit Francis as Pope. Now he has removed the Maltese Knights Grandmaster and put his own man in charge of the organization. Really? But Yes, yes. So um, there's definitely been a lot of animosity between these two groups over the years, and I kind of think that that uh, really played into a lot of the deep politics of the Vatican, first with the mysterious death of John Paul I after 33 days as Pope, and then the, 33 days, you know, nice number. Mm-hmm. And then the sudden um, resignation of Benedict more recently. Mm-hmm. Benedict had also received a lot of patronage over the years by Opus Dei and the Knights of Malta. And then the Jesuit Francis coming to power, which I think was kind of the first time the Jesuits really you know, managed to make a push into the upper hierarchy of the Vatican in almost a quarter of a century now. We've we've touched on it a little bit, but what is their relationship to Freemasonry? Is there one? Or are they more animo- Is there more? Are they more like antagonistic towards each other? 
It's, I mean, really difficult to say. I think that the Maltese Knights were more uh, supportive of these more arcane branches of it, such as Martinism. But, I mean, of course, the modern manifestation of Martinism was created by Pappas in the late 19th century. In a lot of ways, at least Pappas and many of the practitioners considered it to be a kind of Christian mysticism, and it generally was very antagonistic towards more mainline Freemasonry. I tend to think that the Maltese Knights were compelled somewhat by Freemasonry when it was presented within a kind of quasi-Christian framework. It was more of the revolutionary brand of Freemasonry that tended to originate more from the British lodges and some of the French ones that they had a strong antagonism towards. I was curious, I had emailed you a couple of bullet points, and one of those that I was curious about is kind of what their relationship is to well, first the Habsburgs, and to any other like now defunct or current um, European monarchies. Well, I'm not entirely sure about too many of the monarchies. I mean, in terms of the membership, they've they've been pretty tight-lipped about what noble families are involved with it. I believe um, the one German family, though, Thurn in Texas, I've seen is being a member of it. Uh, and then, of course, there's been the longtime patronage from the Habsburg dynasty. But I did find it to be rather interesting that um, a member of the Medici family uh, had also been a prominent knight of Malta towards the end of the 16th, early 17th century. This was Antonio uh, de Medici, who had helped reestablish the uh, Casino Marciano di San Morocco, which I know I totally butchered. <laughs> but it was essentially a kind of... Um, alchemical slash hermetic school that was in Florence in that era that had um, entertained many of the prominent alchemists of that age. Uh, definitely Antonio was himself something of an alchemist. And to kind of bring things full circle, um, Gelli, the grandmaster of P2, was based out of Florida, nearby Florence for much of his tenure when he was operating. And Florence was also the site of the prominent serial killings that were committed by a figure that the press dubbed the monster of Florence in that era as well. So he kind of has this long association with these esoteric schools that were related to this kind of far-right Catholicism. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. You mind? Sure, sure. Uh, I'd like, uh, one of the difficulties I've had when I started sticking my toe in the water about the uh, sovereign military order although most of my time has been spent with some kind of bizarre evangelical offshoot of it lately. But um, on the core, I can find scarce, uh, hardcore documentation, the kind that you can use in a book like I'm using, you know, that's sort of unimpeachable uh, documents to document the actual members of the Knights of Malta. Like, for example, I came across a newsletter where Rick Santorum recently you know, admitted that he was a Knight of Malta and showed his indoctrination. And I know Eric Prince of Blackwater is one. Um, what references have you found outside of the conspiracy literature that are good, sound references that have lists with their documentation of a lot of the main people like we know, the CIA chiefs and others, being Knights of Malta? Is there a place where I and the listeners could go look to find some good, solid documentation on that? In a word, no. (laughs) 
Um, honestly, that was one of the first things that really had got me interested in chronicling the Knights of Malta because, you know, you see them mentioned a lot kind of stealthily, but it's like there's very, very little material that's directly, you know, that directly references the Knights of Malta that's available out there. You see them, you know, mentioned here and there in a lot of different books, but there's never been, I mean, one particular book or, I mean, you know, an article or something that's really tried to look at them in depth. So I've really had to piece together a lot of things over the years from very uh, various references and what have you that I've found. Um, I know Robert Hutchinson's book on Opus Die, uh, Their Kingdom Come, actually has some interesting things about the Maltese Knights and some of the um, interplay with the uh, Jesuits and other you know factions within the Vatican that I found to be quite useful. Um, let's see here. Uh, Daniel Gassner's book on Gladio also has some compelling men- uh, references to them as well. But yeah, you're right. There's really not, I mean, a good book that's solely dedicated to them. I mean, this is a lot of stuff that I've had to, you know, kind of look at, you know, more legitimate articles that I've found online. Obviously, there's the piece that Martin A. Lee wrote back in the 1980s that uh, has been referenced a lot. That was one of the first really credible articles that was written on the Maltese Knights that had a membership list of modern figures in it. But it's, it's definitely something that's hard to come by, and I mean, it's required a lot of sleuthing over the years on my part, and also to try to confirm things that you do see in some of the conspiracy books that seem plausible, but, you know, there's not really a lot of documentation out there to prove it. Well, you know, there's a long list of the CIA chiefs that are supposedly Knights of Malta, um... But it's really hard for me. I mean, a random biography might mention it in passing on one or two of them. But it's really hard to have a credible reference. And I would appreciate, you know, forwarding to me any that you come across that are not just part of what gets fairly or unfairly termed the conspiracy literature. Because what happens, the circle gets to be very self-referential. And they're sort of circular references, you know, like... You know, like an Alex Constantine, for example, he'll list a lot of this stuff, but you can't find the source material that he always gets some of these things from and, and, and other things like that. So I found that to be a real challenge. Now, with these, this evangelical offshoot that I've been studying, they mouth off themselves about it, or it's not too hard to find, you know, something that they did at the Heritage Grand Hotel. But for the real sovereign military order, it's onesie-twosies that I can, you know, document who's in it, actually. Yeah, like I said, it's definitely tough. I mean, that's why I've, especially when I'm uh, chronicling the nights of my blog, I've usually gone to great lengths to include a lot of the citations from more legitimate books that I've found on them and links to, you know, I mean, actual right. credible articles and whatnot. Because, yeah, I definitely agree. It's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, a circle jerk in a lot of the conspiracy literature with this type of topic where, I mean, right. people just reference these claims and there's no basis to them. you know nobody right. really sat down and like okay well where did this come from you know right right the st petersburg branch uh, what influence does that have today i mean is there because you know you russia is very much in the news right now so does that have some does that have an influence on what is happening now it's difficult to say um the Russian branch, or what claims to be the Russian branch, really got going in the 1950s, and it was kind of an offshoot 
of the you know kind of broader fascist international network I mentioned before. Um, within it, I mean, there were especially prominent a member of uh, military officers, high-ranking officers, a lot of them who had served with uh, Douglas MacArthur either in the Pacific Theater of World War II or Korea, uh, most notably his longtime intelligence chief, Charles Willoughby. And um, another uh, big figure was Pedro de Valle as well, and he was a Marine general. And I can't really speak to Russian influence, but I mean, this group really seems to have played a tremendous role in creating uh, what we would now think of as the militia and sovereign citizen movement. Really? Uh, these really uh, grew out oh. of a movement called the Posse Comitatus Movement, which was um, created by a man named Colonel William Potter Gale in uh, the 1960s. Uh, a kind of quasi-biography was written uh, on Gale in the, I believe, late 80s, possibly early 90s, by Sharia Seymour, who also wrote The Last Circle, which is probably the best book on the end law affair, in my opinion. But this was an earlier book she wrote called The Committee of the States, and um, she asked Gale where he got the ideal to establish the posse comitatus and then turn the militia movement, the sovereign citizen movement, and he told her that there were three military officers that came to him, two of them, uh, General Bell, uh, Pedro de Valle and Colonel Benjamin Stahl, were members of the uh, Sovereign Order of St. John, and Gale had served under General Charles Willoughby in the, the Philippines during World War II who was also, as I said before, a member of the Sovereign Order of St. John as well. So it really seems like this was the group that really pushed for the creation of the militia movement in the early 60s, initially by kind of co-opting the Minutemen and then leading to some more militant groups like the National States Right Party later on. Huh. So now we're getting into like some really serious far-right homegrown politics here. Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, I kind of think in a lot of ways this sort of constituted the American wing of Operation Gladio or Condor or something to that effect, mm. because this whole network, I mean, later turns up and, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing and a lot of this, you know, kind of domestic terrorism. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, you know, the as I understand it, the um, the, the Russian arm has some kind of historical basis of legitimacy because the Tsar was willing to take in the Knights of Malta from Malta. And it wasn't until later that the Pope decided to stand up and say, hey, we'll take some of them and go back and have, you know, official papal identification. And then some portion of them split off and became the Sovereign Military Order of Knights of Malta and claimed to be legitimate. The group that I have followed, which now has all these televangelists involved, and some ex-Special Forces people came out of the Tsar's group. And people have always questioned their legitimacy, if they were legitimate. And they have fought the other American established Knights of Malta groups and have won in court, including the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, who tried to put them out of business. And they actually won and showed they had earlier American uh, establishment than the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. And is this the, uh, not there of you, but is this the one that General uh, Boykin was involved that's right, with, William Boykin? That's right, that's right. Nicholas Papa Nicolau, who is an intriguing guy in his own right, he ran the Onassis shipping empire for them. He was a Greek tycoon, but he is tied to an oligarch, Vladimir Yakunin, who was the head of the railroads, good buddy of Putin, and they run this... Uh, 
uh, was a dialogue of civilizations organization. And on one side, the only reason I found out about them was I got an erroneous email. That was the crux of my 12-volume book series I started, Stimulus for it, uh, talking about that the, basically they were using the pretense of being uh, some chivalrous uh, group to you know, do charitable work, but really that they were there to fight underground, fight the Muslims like, like their predecessors did at Rhodes and Malta. And that's where it involved, and actually it was sent out through General Boykin's uh, address with Papa Nicolau, and since then Rick Joyner and a bunch of other ones have joined into it as well. Even Ricky Skaggs, a country music star who lives around the corner from where I live, was indoctrinated by the guy who put the... Kurt Waldheim was a part of it too. You know, the ex-Nazi that was a prime minister of Austria. They met him Uh over there. And then the guy who actually ran the Spandau prison over Hess was the guy who got them into the Knights of Malta. Supposedly. Yes, yes, yes. No, um, one of my regular readers has been uh, telling me about this organization for a while now, and he has claimed that it is a descendant of the Pitchell group that I was just outlining that had helped create the Posse Comitatus movement. I haven't been able to... Yeah totally confirm that yet, but I definitely think that his suspicion is correct. I mean, it definitely seems like over the years it's really been a magnet for these uh, far-right-wing military officers. Well, I I don't think it is. In fact, they were sort of rivals. There really is a Maltese connection to this group. They had their own place where they would do their uh, invocations there and and what they call them investitures in Malta itself. But there was a little palace coup within this group, and the old-school Maltese, who are much more just into having titles and uh, pedigree and not trying to get out there and, like, have real fights and things, that were embedded in Malta overthrew Nicholas Papa Nicolau, and suddenly his name was stricken from the record a few years ago, like around 2012. And so he was able to win in court to still keep the name and still run it and has the same place there in Palm Springs, Florida. When he's not selling real estate, he's running this Knights of Malta group and investing new people in the religious right into it. But um, the guys at Malta have have sort of wrung their hands of him. But this gets really more to my book stuff. But these guys still have a commitment, at least the, the Special Forces guys, into actually waging a global uh, underground guerrilla fight against them, and they have basically admitted to it in so many words in the public and in their writings. Like I said, I would definitely believe that. I mean, it seems like a lot of these schismic branches of uh, the Order of St. John in the U.S. and organizations that are related to them have been used extensively by intelligence agencies over the years, and I kind of I've generally wondered if a lot of the internal rivalries that we hear about from these groups and the constant schisms that result in those are, to some extent, more show than, um, you know, an actual uh, commitment on their part. Because, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's muddied the water and it's made it very difficult to trace, you know, the origins of these groups and their connections to other groups. And thus, it's very well camouflaged their tracks, so to speak. Um, another, you know, really interesting organization that was uh, related to the Sovereign Order of St. John, the Pitchell Organization from the 50s, uh, was the American Orthodox Catholic Church, uh, which was a group that 
course, the famed occult historian Peter Lavendia claimed that he was a part of as a teenager in New York in the mm -hmm. late 60s, early 70s, and um, it also allegedly included J. Edgar Hoover and mysteriously also uh, David Ferry, who was involved in the Kennedy assassination, and another private detective that worked with Ferry, I believe Jack Martin. So, you know, it kind of had these ties to the Order of St. John as well. And, I mean, in the case of David Ferry, I mean, he was an arch-pedophile. And there were also accounts that the church that he was involved with, this American Orthodox Catholic Church, was also the one that um, the famed hypnotist um, William Joseph Byron, I believe his name was, uh, was involved in in California. So it was definitely a very, you know, murky netherworld of a lot of uh, very extreme figures. What do you think, well, what are their main activities that they're trying to accomplish today, and what is their end game? What is the ultimate thing they want to accomplish, to say mission accomplished? <laughs> I really hesitate to speculate what would go on. People, honestly, uh, I mean, it just, to some extent, at times, seems like cruelty for cruelty's sake. I mean, I suppose some level these groups think that they're trying to bring about God's kingdom on the earth or something to that effect, but uh, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's a belief or a commitment to trying to restore an older kind of feudile-like order not just, I mean, in the West but, I mean, across the entire world a kind of neo-feudalism if you will, which, I mean, isn't necessarily that much different from the end game of uh, the kind of rivals they have in the globalist faction I think really a lot of it sort of depends on the ideology that's going to be promoted, whether it's going to be this kind of, um, you know, clerical fascism that's personified by the Knights of Malta or something that kind of masquerades as more progressive and liberal. Are they still possibly fighting a clash of civilizations with the Muslims as well? Like it just goes all the way back to a thousand years ago and they're still fighting that? I mean, I think to some extent, I mean, there's probably some hardliners that genuinely believe that. But, I mean, I think at this point, I mean, the Knights of Malta become, I mean, a truly global player. They, I just think, have objectives beyond simply winning a kind of clash of civilizations with the Islamic world. Now, now the group that I'm studying, they make no bones about it. That's their main call. Yeah. I mean, the books they write, like Rick Joyner and the others, that's what he talks about. That's... They were called, and, and they sort of take their charismatic Pentecostal view that this was part of some kind of spiritual in-game plan, that God had planned the Knights of Malta in the last days to basically be infilled with the Pentecostals to become super warriors to stop this. And so they see this as all part of like a cosmic playbook. And they really and, elaborate. And this organization that you've been talking about is just, they go by just Knights of Malta in America? Yeah, they usually call it the little formal name, the Sovereign or, or the uh, the Order of St. John, uh, okay. which yeah, is the, the same. Groups right, the but they have the Saint same, John. right, the same, uh, um, you know. Um, Symbols, the Maltese right, cross. Right, Maltese cross. The black, but, they wear the black capes with the white thing. But primarily mm. Protestant, this one. Uh, primarily Protestant. In fact, so there very, are also some um, Orthodox uh, Christians in this too, right. because of the Russian influence. In fact, they have an Orthodox patron over this group that's actually Russian Orthodox uh, as well. So they they do. There are some Catholics in the group, but it's it's chocked full of Pentecostals, 
And Nicholas Papanikolaou is a Greek Orthodox himself. And he's tied to the Russians. He he works directly with the Russians. And so, yeah, they already have those connections there. But but they aren't they are just like your typical sovereign military order knights. They like to get up and dress up in clothes and drink a lot and talk about the good old days. And then, then you got the militant kind, like the CIA guys. These kind of people, if you read carefully their literature and find the stuff that they sort of slightly fictionalize, what what they do, are doing is they're bringing together uh, ex-Special Forces people and others to basically form an illegal mercenary group to globally, in fact, using fake nonprofits to actually use as a place to launder weapons and other money. And one of the people in their literature that they alluded to um, under a slight pseudonym, and it was later uncovered, finally I put the two and two together, was when Jerry Boykin had run a secret program in North Korea and had used a Christian outfit that was taking Bibles in North Korea and smuggling them and everything. What it turned out, that whole group was set up to smuggle weapons nuclear weapons and uh, actual armament for an invasion of North Korea under the guise that they were bringing Bibles in. And they were using these pseudo-Christian groups to really just be ready for a war invasion. And I think the Intercept blew the whistle on that. They were the ones that actually got the information out. That And that guy actually uncovered, he was the one that started the whole purity ball movement. And we're talking about really, really, I mean, to me, pretty sicko kind of stuff. And, and- oh, yeah, Boykin, I mean, especially with major player. Well, I mean, he was, um, I mean, involved in the Department of Defense as well. I think uh, he was, what, the um, uh, Deputy Director of Defense Intelligence or something to that effect. He was the, head, he was the head of Pentagon Intelligence. That's he, right. He, was, yes, he yes. was the head of that. He, anywhere you see an atrocity, he's not far away. He was yes, involved. I was say. Yeah, he was involved in the decision to invade the Waco compound. He um, was involved uh, tangentially in the Abu Ghraib incident, and he brought supposedly what they'd been using at Camp X-Ray and brought it to Abu Ghraib for them to use, uh, and a, a long list of other activities like that. He's, uh, you know, but mostly he talks about his Christian activities that somehow is in con- Of course, he was the guy heading the whole Black Hawk Down thing, too. He was the guy responsible for that debacle. But what I was going to say, I mean, yes, during the Bush two years when um, he was in charge of the Pentagon intelligence, he was actually one of the figures who helped initiate, um, I believe it was called Copper Green, which was a special access program, and that was what um, a lot of these torture programs really grew out of. And there's, I mean, a certain school of thought that thinks that this actually might have been a revival of Project Artichoke or Project MK Ultra or something to that effect. I mean, Boykin was definitely, I mean, a major player beyond, you know, these, I mean, black ops missions and what have you. He did as part of the Joint Special Operations Command. He also seems to have been engaged in these, you know, I mean, really extreme uh, behavior modification techniques that the Pentagon was using. Right. Well, uh, he, he testified before Congress that what he was invoking is what they used to use in Operation Phoenix. Yes, yes. And he was all really, you know, thrilled about that. The Phoenix was also, I mean, another kind of variation on Gladio and Condor, but obviously much more extreme since we were in an actual shooting war with Vietnam. It was really unleashed to a scale to which you hadn't seen in Europe or Latin America. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, really, 
the creation of the joint special um, or the joint uh, was the JSOC, uh, joint special operations command. Uh, I mean, Boykin wasn't involved in the creation, but he became a major player in it. And I mean, essentially, JSOC was kind of set up as I mean, almost a global Phoenix program by the uh, latter period of the War on Terror. Right. What What is the appeal of something like the Knights of Malta to these individuals? Like, what do they What do they get out of it? Like, I mean, do they just like to play dress up? I mean, what? Just the appeal. Well, which one of are it? we talking about? Are we talking about yeah. the Sovereign Military Order of Malta? Are we talking about one of the uh, orders of Saint John? Just either of them. I think it's yeah. just the concept. Why? Yeah. Why are they? Why are they filled with these types of people, and what attracts these types of people to them? Uh, I mean, I think certainly, you know, I mean, you have a lot of traditionalists in this camp, and I think, you know, the lineage, the history of it, I mean, would certainly have an appeal to it. I think also, I mean, just the commitment to these, you know, extreme ideologies would be an appeal, if you will. And I mean, certainly, I would say in some of the more mystically inclined, I mean, there's this sort of belief that there's this esoteric doctrine in some of these groups that would be an appeal it seems to me like a lot of it is more of that these uh, these types of organizations are just so useful to states, to uh, people with money, to intelligence agencies, because it can it can take things even further black than intelligence agencies. You can take things really into the shadows with things like, especially the official Knights of Malta. And, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were in a lot of ways a kind of quasi-intelligence organization. I mean, well before the CIA was even created. Uh, <clears throat> well, it, it also, for some of these people, the fact that you tie into some ancient order or something that claims to be gives them some kind of endorsement of their elitist views mm-hmm. and their views... That, that they feel like they want to protect their own kind. It's very close to white nationalism in a lot of ways. They're protecting their race and their their um, belief in the way of life, their civilization, over yes, some kind heritage. of rival, some rival civilization, some barbarian at the gate. And by tying themselves to that, it gives them some legitimacy, like this is an ancient battle, and it's not me that's nuts, because if people have been doing it for hundreds of years, then it must be something legitimate. And yeah, and also they, they yeah they use it to train they it's a way to indoctrinate people because these people are invited into these groups and so then they're made to feel very very special you're part of an elite cadre that does that knows more than anybody else about the nature of what, the spiritual battle we're fighting and they feel flattered when they're part of this group it's like being invited to be part of the Justice League or something like that you know I mean really. <laughs> And so it's well, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really very accurate. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're the elite of the elite. I mean, especially in the official Knights of Malta. I mean, you know, generally, I mean, generally they've only let uh, aristocrats, people with noble from noble families, in there. So, yes, I mean, there's a certain awe. I mean, to being invited into some of these groups. Who are some sus- suspected uh, current major players uh, in world politics, and particularly in the U.S., who are either, uh, you know, not necessarily confirmed? I know it's hard to confirm, but who are some major players who are uh, suspected of being official Knights of Malta? Well, the big one that I, I mean, I would say that would come to mind would be Prince, Eric Prince, of course. Um, yeah. 
And obviously, oh gosh, who was the other figure official in Blackwater? Who was uh, he's a known member of the Knights of Malta? Schmitz. Um, Schmitz. Yes. 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 Yeah, he's a he's a he's the guy who let Boykin off the hook. As the he was the inspector general, and they were getting ready to fire him for corruption as inspector general, and he went, and they were they were going to bring up on criminal charges Jerry Boykin, and he basically totally exonerated and pardoned Jerry Boykin right before he left, uh, before he went to go be second in command at Blackwater. But he he was the guy. His his sister is Mary Kay Letourneau, the the woman. Who had a baby with like a, a eleven <laughs> yeah. or twelve year old boy, uh-huh. and was all in the news for that. And their dad, who Smiths out of California, he was an extreme hardcore right winger, and he had an affair with some student and messed up a lot of that. But you're talking about an Adams family of just <laughs> totally, you know, totally messed up people. And so obviously we give them premier positions of authority since they. You know, it's it's like the uh, Huxley family. You know, when they weren't in the sanatorium, they were running the UN, <laughs> and that's that's basically like the Schmitz family. And he's very influential on the Trump campaign too. Just like uh, uh, the whole anti-Sharia movement, he's very involved in that. Uh, you know, along with Eric Prince. Oh, absolutely. And then, uh, I mean, of course, there would be Boinkin himself. Um... And then, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of rumblings, you know, for a while now that quite a few high-ranking officials in the um, special operations forces are involved with these, you know, orders of knighthood, either the uh, actual Knights of Malta or the, uh, one of the orders of St. John. So, I mean, and then I believe what was, um, gosh, the journalists uh, who had even argued that there were several members in the, um, you know, the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and what have you that were involved with the Maltese Knights. Oh, by the uh, way, Hurst, I, Hurst. yeah, William Randolph first. I, I would guess yes. William Paley probably was. Um, I brought something here. I don't know if you remember back in '98, uh, Rupert Murdoch was uh, brought into the Knights of Malta too. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, Rupert Murdoch, and also, um, um, well, I mentioned Rick Santorum. I got some hard evidence. For one of his new letter, newsletters, he showed the picture of him being inducted into the Knights of Malta, which is no surprise, because he's really a poster boy for the Catholic hard right. Yeah. You know, the the whole tying of Christendom College and uh, Brent Bozell and that crowd, they all are sort of like the American arm of the hard right. Well, uh, uh, Patrick, uh, the guy from the uh, Nixon speechwriter, Patrick... Uh, you know, it's a crossfire. Oh, yeah. Patrick, Pat Buchanan. Buchanan, yeah. Oh, Buchanan, oh, yeah. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, you know, they're, they're the voices of that, of that crowd. What's interesting about Eric Prince, you know, he was raised a hardcore Dutch Calvinist, which would have at one time fought these Catholics very hard. I mean, the Calvinists were basically the Protestant Jesuits. And for him to switch, the reason why he said he switched was because he thought the Knights of Malta were basically, for pardon my French, more kick-ass in terms of fighting spiritual war uh-huh, uh-huh. against these than the than the Dutch Calvinists. They just didn't have enough fight in them, and the Knights of Malta were gave him a spiritual. Um, you know, that took a lot to say that was more important to him than the fundamental beliefs about God that they fought the Reformation over. 
Well, that wasn't any big deal with him. He wanted somebody who looked really boss and had a nice costume. And the Knights of Malta had that. Who knows what else he got, but, you know, at least he's able to go to the Seychelles and meet with uh, mysterious Russian officials and have his hands on President Trump's shoulders during the presidential returns on election night. I mean, that's how close he was to President Trump. That's why Betsy DeVos is Secretary of Education. Right. Her, his yeah. his yeah. sister. Yeah. Speaking of Trump. Which, by the way, that's he, she's connected to the only organization more powerful than the Knights of Malta, and that's Amway. That's true, yeah. Talk about a murky organization <laughs> of global power and reach. Man. Um, so, are there... Are there anything? Is there anything that you've turned up as far as uh, direct influence? Do you think in the current administration uh, coming about through the help of some of these uh, organizations? And then also, I know you've done you've got a great series on your blog about uh, Trump's connections to organized crime in the history of building his business empire until now. If you could touch on a little bit of that too, if we could segue yeah. into it, because that's going to be a whole other show, I think. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, obviously with Eric Prince, I mean, I'd say he would be one of the chief liaisons now between the Maltese Knights and, um, or probably at least factions of it since the Maltese Knights seem to be fighting their own kind of civil war in the Vatican with Pope Francis at the moment. But I would say that Prince would definitely be at the forefront of advisors there. Um, and as the t- uh, ties to organized crime, I mean, for Trump, a lot of that goes back to his association with um, the McCarthyite uh, counsel, Roy Kuhn, who was Trump's, uh, Trump's longtime attorney in New York. Uh, Kuhn was extremely well-connected to the mob, and I mean, also just a rogues gallery of other notorious figures. Um, one of the more interesting I've found was the fact that uh, Kuhn was the attorney for a guy named Biff Halloran, who was a member of the Genovese crime family. Um, Halloran had actually employed a young man in the 70s known as Bradley Bryant, who would go on to found a criminal organization in Kentucky that was simply referred to as the company. It uh, drew almost exclusively from the ranks of former police officers and military men. Uh, They actually used Soldier Fortune magazine to recruit a lot of these types, and they became an extremely effective drug trafficking organization. They trafficked arms and whatnot. Uh, They became involved with the Medellin Medellin cartel in the uh, early 80s. So, I mean, this was a heavy connection, and they were also quite active in the Kentucky Derby scene and what have you with the um, local elites in uh, Lexington. Was this the same group that became known as the Cornbread Mafia, or is that a totally different group? Uh, I think it was a totally different group. Because they were running, I mean, the money they were bringing in, you know, on drugs, a lot of that was probably pot, but they were bringing in tons and tons of money, the Cornbread Mafia, so I didn't know if they were tied in there. Do you know where they were based out of? Because this group was mainly based out of Kentucky and Georgia. Well, Georgia, I mean, Kentucky was their operations. Now, it may have been more central and western Kentucky where the Cornbread Mafia was. But they're they're a big deal. I mean, they they were big, big, big money. And, and you know, law enforcement, people got in their way, disappeared. Yeah, wow. yeah. See, this group actually had a lot of Lexington cops. Actually, one of the founders, Andrew Drew Thornton, had been um, a Lexington police officer before he had uh, signed up with the company. And before that, he had been, um, I believe, in the 101 Airborne or something to that effect. 
But um, these guys were really active in the Kentucky Derby scene in the early 1980s, and uh, there's a lot of evidence that they were connected to the governor of Kentucky at the time, uh, John Y. Brown, who, ironically, I suppose, had actually been the mogul who had really turned Kentucky Fried Chicken into right. a major international franchise. He had sold his stock in it, and I believe the mid '70s, and become extremely wealthy from that. Right. Uh, but uh, his daughter, was, his daughter's one he, of the main anchors on CNN now. Oh, okay, Pamela okay. Brown. Yeah, yeah. You know, he married a Miss America, Phyllis. Yeah, Phyllis George. George yeah. Right. Who was? Yes, yes. Well, I'm going to get to her in a minute. There's definitely some interesting things with oh, her. Oh, really? But, um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, Trump was active in this Kentucky Derby scene in the 80s, as were the Clinton family. And I mean, you can actually go back and find a picture of uh, Trump with uh, Governor Brown and Hillary Clinton kind of looking on admiringly wow. uh, from this era. <laughs> so, I mean, and this is at the same time when Brown was potentially involved in a major, you know, international drug ring uh, that was being run by a lot of former police officers and um, military figures. Uh, he was also reportedly a shadow owner of Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, which Trump was a frequent guest of during this time, and uh, a lot of members of the company were going to to launder drug money at. But anywho, um, getting back to Roy Kuhn, uh, Kuhn also is a figure that might have potentially been, uh, that had connections to the uh, Roy Raiden murder, which uh, Maury Terry, of course, famously linked to the Son of Sam murders. But, the Cotton um, Club? Yeah, the Cotton yeah. Club murder, mm -hmm. essentially. Raiden was uh, a vaudeville producer in um, New York. Uh, he did a lot of stuff for policemen unions and what have you, and he had wanted to break into show business, and he had uh, convinced the legendary movie producer Bob Evans, who had been Phyllis George's ex-husband, the uh, man she had been married to prior to uh, marrying uh, Governor Brown, to uh, help him support the Cotton Club film, and in the process, uh, Braden ended up dead under mysterious circumstances. But uh, Raiden was involved in this really hardcore S&M sex scene that a lot of these elites were involved in in New York at the time, around New York City, and a lot of it really sounds like kind of full-blown, eyes-wide-shut type stuff. I mean, they would go to these secluded mansions, and uh, there would be a lot of just bondage and costumes and things of that nature. And uh, apparently the godfather of the scene, quote-unquote, was a man named Thomas Corbely, who had been an OSS officer during World War II, and he had briefly worked in military intelligence. He may have possibly helped set up the Gladio networks in the late 40s, early 50s in Germany. And uh, he had eventually become Roy Kuhn's uh, longtime private detective. He did a lot of work for Kuhn over the years. And Kuhn, his house was allegedly a part of this scene uh, in Connecticut, which was used for some of these parties. So, you know, you have kind of this murky underworld, or, you know, that uh, you see people like Bob Evans popping up in. And then, ironically, Corbely. Uh, would later show up in L.A. in the early 90s, and he was involved with the Hollywood Madam at the time. Uh, I believe Heidi Fleiss or something right. who was also dating Bob Evans at the time. So it seems like Corbley had this kind of long-time association with Robert Evans going back to at least the late 70s. <clears throat> That's a lot to take in right there. <laughs> Man. Yeah, it's like I said, it's a very, I mean, incestuous, you know, I mean, netherworld you get into there. Uh, but I mean, yes, you know, I mean, Philip George, Phyllis George, she was married to Bob Evans. She uh, divorces him. She ends up with Jerry Brown, or um, 
John Y. Brown, and then they end up moving into Trump Tower after uh, Brown lost the elections in 1983, in part because of the allegations that he was involved in the company that came up during his campaign. And then at the same time, um, Roy Coon, Trump's attorney, is involved with uh, Thomas Corbelly in this you know bizarre sex scene in uh, New York City that involves bondage and what have you that, I mean, Evans might have been connected to. Yes, it's really something now, else. Now, Roy is the same guy who was the main guy behind um, um, uh, McCarthy, right? Right. Joe McCarthy. Yes, right. yes. He yeah. was uh, yes, the lead attorney for McCarthy, and he right. was probably, because Corbelly was also involved in what's known as the Profumo Affair, which brought down the uh, government of Harold Macklin in the U.K. in 1963. It involved uh, the, what was it, the Secretary for... War of Air Force, or I can't remember what his title was, but he was involved in the Defense Department. His name was John Perfumo, and he had had an affair with this woman named Christine Keeler, and at the same time, Keeler was also sleeping with a Soviet naval attache who was also an asset of the GRU, the uh, Soviet military intelligence. And the man who had set them up, uh, who had set Keeler up with both men, was a guy named Stephen Ward, and he was kind of running this bizarre sex ring in the UK that also, I mean, had this kind of eyes wide shut air to it and involved a lot of uh, British aristocrats, most notably Lord Astor. And Corbally was also in participating in this scene. And another interesting figure that he was involved with at this time was a man named William Mellon Hitchcock. Hitchcock and Corbally had a flat in London at the time that they threw sex parties out of reportedly. And shortly after they fled London, when the scandal started to break, Hitchcock ended up in New York again at Millbrook, where he became the chief uh, patron of Timothy Leary. And then later on, he would become the banker for the Brotherhood of the Eternal Love, which was the largest LSD syndicate in the world by the end of the 60s. So Hitchcock was extremely instrumental in launching uh, LSD and the kind of culture associated with it in the 60s. And prior to that, he had been Thomas Corbley's roommate in London involved in this bizarre sex ring. <laughs> you, you mentioned Eyes Wide Shut. Do you think Kubrick might have known something? Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially... Um, with the setting of it, because, I mean, the book or the movie was based on a book. Um, what was it, Dream Novel or something to that effect? I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But um, it was set in um, Venice at the turn of the century, and Kubrick relocated it to New York City. And, um, you know, you definitely see, like, these kind of secluded mansions, which the uh, Raiden sex ring was reportedly, you know, was the type of locations that they used. So I definitely think that might have been what Kubrick was hinting at. I do think that the decision to select New York was very deliberate on his part, and that he probably was aware of some of this when he selected the city. Wow. Fascinating. If, if you would like an update for people keeping notes at home, the Cornbread Mafia was a group who created the largest domestic marijuana production operation in U.S. history. It was based in Marion, McCreary, Nelson, and Washington counties in central Kentucky. It was known to the public by this name in June 1989 when prosecutors revealed 20 men were arrested for organizing a marijuana trafficking ring that stretched across the Midwest. Eventually it became 100 people, I think, they got arrested for that so dang there you go okay i think that would have been after the time of the company then because the company i think it was brought down by about 82 or 83 oh, okay. 
Well, maybe found something else for them to do. Of course, the most important thing is Molly Hatchett sang a song called Cornbread Mafia. And another little piece of trivia, there is a Louisville band named Cornbread Mafia, and they're the ones that did uh, um, Traitor, Dare Call It Treason. Have you ever heard that song? Uh-uh. About uh, the 911 attacks? Uh-uh. Yeah, look it up on YouTube. You can find Cornbread Mafia, Traitor, Dare Call It Treason. Cool. <laughs> Recluse, before uh, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you, uh, you also write a lot about Fortiana on the blog, too. Like, you're really into the the Fortian Strange stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was, well, I mean, the blog actually originally began um, out of a paranormal investigation society. So, yes, that was sort of my, I guess, originally my uh, entrance point into this uh, <laughs> odd journey that it's been. You know, my... my most important question of the night for you is what is the terrifying ghostly music going on in the background? <laughs> uh, that would be a crap rock album by Klaus Schultz uh, right. called Moon Dawn. Okay. It's actually kind of some early electronic music from Germany. I don't, you cool. probably heard of Tangerine Dream, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Schultz actually used to be a member of Tangerine Dream in uh, the early 70s and then left uh, after that, and he ended up going solo, and this was the kind of weird music he uh, ended up doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I was sort of under psychic attack in my subconscious <laughs> just hearing it. I was wondering yeah, if we yeah. were getting some transmissions yeah, or something. Yeah, I don't know what was going on. What's going on? It's it's made for great atmosphere though. Yeah. Well, I tried. <laughs> yeah, you've got some you've got some really good taste in music. I I, I must say, man. Well, uh, you're on, a fan of Repo blog. Man. I saw on your uh, blog description a guy like that can't be all bad. Pardon me? You're a fan of Repo Man, correct? I think you mentioned yeah, that on your yes, blog. Yes, yes, big you, fan you, of Repo Man. You can't be all bad. <laughs> You're also into the Butthole Surfers. I'm down with that. Yeah, yeah, big fan <laughs> of Butthole Surfers. Uh, I've really been in a band called Chrome lately. I don't know if you ever heard of them, but uh, they were a big influence in the Butthole Surfers. Halo's Creed actually plays a little guitar on uh, Independent Worm Salon. He was uh, Chrome's main guitar yes. player. Chrome, for Chrome is really cool, yeah. Yeah, I love Chrome. <laughs> I thought about maybe putting some Chrome on while we were doing this, but I thought that might be a little too distracting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of abrasive. I'm just a little disturbed that you all are really into Eyes Wide Shut and the Butthole Surfers. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've seen worse than that here inside this place. I've had to wear a Venetian mask to get in here sometime. And nothing <laughs> nothing else. In fact, they're doing this interview sky clad right now. <laughs> we, well, we've made our own offshoot of uh, the Malta Knights. Yeah. Uh, Recluse, uh, what's next for you? What are you going to be writing about? And tell everybody where they can find uh, the blog. Uh, well, you can find it at uh, www.buysupview.blogspot.com. Uh, uh, or excuse me, HTTP, uh, you know, colon, backslash, backslash, buysupview.blogspot.com. Buysup is, of course, V-I-S-U-P, and then view. Uh, as for what's next, I honestly haven't really decided yet. I've Obviously, I'm trying to finish up my um, series on the Knights of Malta, at least some of their history uh, in preparation for this podcast going live. So hopefully I'll have a post on that up in the next week or so. 
But uh, I have a lot of different stuff I'm researching right now. It's a bit, I think one of the issues I'm kind of having is there's so many projects I want to do that require all this intensive research, and I can't really decide which direction I want to go in. But uh, I recently started looking at the smiley face murders, and that's uh, oh, kind really? of sparked my interest a little bit. Okay. Mm. We, did a, we did a show about that not too long ago. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, guy named William Ramsey and... Uh, He's put out a like a three-hour video about it. You might be interested in checking his stuff out. Yeah, no, definitely. Like I said, I've just kind of started to look into it. But um, I just was really struck by, I mean, the similarities between the victims, the fact that they're all, you know, kind of athletic young men, and they all end up, uh, you know, turning up drowned in rivers. Yeah, same here. It's very strange. Duh. <clears throat> Very, are you a, are you a fan or familiar of the missing four one one material? I've heard of it. I haven't gotten a chance to check it out yet, though. Okay, Rob, was there anything that you wanted to ask her? Um, <clears throat> no. I want to thank uh, thank you and Doctor Future both for being here for this. You yeah, guys absolutely. are obviously thanks. Very Sorry, uh, I crashed. <laughs> None of <laughs> yours. Uh, it, it was a, it was a great conversation with the two of you and Surfiel, obviously for setting it up. Well, no, thanks for having me. It's definitely been very uh, much a learning experience for me, too. I'm definitely interested to hear some of the new information on the uh, on one of the orders of St. John. I definitely, it's kind of a hobby of mine to chronicle some of these odd uh, Catholic groups like that. So I always like uh, getting information on them. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're, we're, I think we need to do this again about because you got so many subjects. The La Circla, I was reading some of that. That's another rabbit hole all of its own <laughs> after uh after we wrap up here would you mind maybe talking to us for just a few minutes about maybe resorts international and trump because that that part of your blog was just fascinating yeah sure sure cool okay cool all right well we're going to close out this section uh thank you so much recluse and guys we'll be back on conspiranormal So uh, yet again, we have another episode. I'm going to have to listen back to and um, figure out what we talked about. Look up everything. Uh, exactly. I was looking stuff up too, man. Uh, so a lot of that stuff I'd never even heard of. Well, it's so great. Honestly, it, it's always so great when we get two guests that have like um a similar like breadth of knowledge. You know that that we can have this kind of meeting of the minds, so to speak. You know and and just really get a lot of uh, interesting, they kind of draw stuff out of each other that way, you know? And once again, I want to thank doc, Dr. Future for driving. Yes. You know, all from three states away. Right? Yes. Or more. Yeah. Be here tonight. Yeah. Oh, it, 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 all the inspiration was really from, it, I really started down this rabbit hole with some of Dr. Future's comments on the 200th episode. And then I started asking him more questions about it. And while I was looking for information, I found Recluse's blog. And it's been it's been a wild ride. Well, you brought the two of them together, man. That's awesome. Yeah, that was, yeah. That was I, my goal. If I can encourage all people who are legitimate researchers for truth, be sure about your references. Get good, solid source material. It can be so frustrating because you can find a chain of thinking that sort of puts all the pieces together but you can't be so sure. I'll, I'll give you a classic example. There was a letter that went between supposedly Albert Pike and a Mazzini 
mm-hmm. guy over there, a big figure in Italy, yep. talking about there would be three wars that were predicted or prophesied. I heard that. And that's basically taken as gospel online. And I started digging and digging and digging because it sure sounded it fit like my thesis really well. And after a lot of digging, I could find books from 1958, the 1790s in France, other things where people had put pieces and pieces together and a little bit of hoax here and there and came up with that whole thing. And I It's kind of like the it. protocols of Zion. Yeah. Pretty much, or the taxal hoax, right. things like that. And uh, it gets so frustrating, but to save a lot of face, you know, it's good to get source material document. It's tedious. It's real boring. You want your brain wants to move on to something else, but you got to document. So, because this stuff's important, it's important because we want good people to be able to be free in this world, and we want good things to happen. And it's not going to happen with our politicians. I think that's pretty obvious. It's going to be places like here if there's anything good that happens. So, yeah. Before we leave, I've got a light, a little bit of a light-hearted story for you, short and sweet. Is it about Knights of Malta? <laughs> it may be. Maybe you never know. Important. This is from uh, July 23rd of this year. Color it a bad night for Color Me Bad, the hit-making R&B outfit that since recruit- reuniting in 2010 have maintained a steady tour schedule. Not everything is so rosy, however, as simmering tensions boiled over on stage during a recent performance in Tyre, New York. As singer and founding member Mark Calderon belted out the final notes of the group's iconic I Want to Sex You Up, fellow founding member Brian K. Adams strolled on stage and fiercely shoved his bandmate. According to TMZ, Calderon hit some sound equipment when he fell, resulting in a trip to a local hospital to treat neck and back pain. Abrams, meanwhile, was arrested for misdemeanor assault and taken to jail. Sources told TMZ that Abrams, frustrated over issues with his voice, left the stage earlier in the night. The Blast, meanwhile, reports that officers tell them alcohol was a factor. Sources also tell The Blast that Abrams screamed, I'm mother effing color me bad. <laughs> when, when pushing Calderon, Abrams reportedly posted bail and was released early Monday morning. All right. It's always hard to see your heroes fall. <laughs> you know? I mean, I've seen worse happen here in this studio. <laughs> you know, I realize who you guys remind me of. Have you all ever seen a show called The Young Ones? Yeah. You know who they are? Yep. Yeah, it's like 1981, Thatcher's England. Uh, yeah. You get, the, it, has, the, it has a house that has like a punk rocker, an anarchist, a hippie, and some unexplainable guy that live together and end up blowing each other up with Molotov cocktails and stuff. There was actually a fifth roommate that you actually like was always kind of in the background. Yeah. Just this strange little figure that looked like it was from like the ring or something. Right. Luke. <laughs> yeah. Luke. <laughs> Doesn't that the remind you of the group here? It does a little bit. Right. We, we need to. We need to have a. Uh, we need to have a. We need to have a cardboard cutout of Luke. That just sits. That just snores. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say it had more input than the real McCoy. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> he always had some really good input. Input. Sure. It was usually. What do you think, Luke? Uh, Rob. Gotta <laughs> uh, get some Taco Bell, dude. I'm starving. <laughs> Life is a fry cook. Bro. I know it's hard replacing him, Serfiel. <laughs> I, I know it's, it's... Well, Serfiel's not replacing him. He's, he's, he's like a lateral addition. 
I'm the third guitarist. <laughs> he took the band in a new direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We took the band in a new direction. Thank you, Doctor Future, for being here. Hey, thanks uh, for, for sitting in with us. I, I hope that it was uh, enjoyable and you guys could exchange. Uh, I've just been holding out. The cops are looking for me outside, and I, they probably I are. The heat is off. You can stay here as long as you like, man. Yeah, they okay. probably are. All right. You know, just just watch out for color be bad. You know, you never know when they're going to come over and suck something up. All right, yeah. Well, <laughs> I sort of feel like uh, uh, who's again the Ecuador embassy? Um, Julian Assange. Yeah, here. Yeah, Man, we didn't even <laughs> like talk about what happened in Venezuela. What happened uh, in Venezuela? The assassination thing. A, a drone attempted the assassination of President Maduro. Yeah, really. Yeah. It was more than one, actually. Wasn't I it? didn't even hear about yeah, this. Yeah, there were more than one. Drones, one, one of yeah. them exploded, I think. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, I was taken. Yeah. He blamed Columbia and the far, you know, they got a big thing going on. Uh, a lot I don't know what right Columbia, there, Missouri had to do with it, but. That's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Well, next up, guys, we are going to have our, our third Romper Room episode, which we've, or may or may not already recorded. So you'll get to enjoy that through the um, magic of time travel. And it's still going to be Rob's birthday. Yes, it will. Now, my birthday forever. When if this happens, sometimes do people get fused into the vessel of the hall, like the Philadelphia experiment? Yeah, it can happen like that. And Somebody's going to be fused into the wall. You I might, you might come happens. out with one of Sir Fail's arms or something. Okay. <laughs> this could be a good one. Hopefully, there's not a fly anywhere near. I know. I hate when that happens. <laughs> help me! Help me! Well, on that note, guys, uh, actually, Rob, uh, before we go, we did do a Patreon with a quick little Patreon with Recluse. We did. You tell everybody where they can find that. Yeah, you can find that on uh, Conspiranormal or, pod, or uh, what is it? Conspiranormal. My birthday. I've been drinking. All right. I got my birthday pajama pants and my birthday slippers and my birthday scotch. So excuse my... Uh, and it's his birthday for two for two more weeks. Two weeks. So. It's been a long birthday. And you can hear me quote Senator Byrd accurately. It was not my words. It was Senator Byrd's words. <laughs> That's right. Really look it hear, up from the congressional hear, record. When you're Don't Dr. Get Future after quoting me. Senator Byrd, you can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We got a lot of bonus episodes up there. Uh, if you don't want to subscribe, you just want to do a one-time donation, you can do that on our website at conspiranormal.com. And if you want to support the show, but you don't want to spend money, we totally uh, appreciate the um, five-star, you know, just positive reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen. And please give a love offering because we love them offerings. Yes, yes that's right. <laughs> and any good reviews, Adam's going to read on the show. So, yep, yep. We 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 need we 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 need money because we don't want to start selling buckets. That's right. Survival mm-hmm. buckets. Buckets of cheese and barley. Either that I'll have to start selling them and Turfiel will have to start sitting there going, wow. 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 <laughs> Feel free to send us samples, though. We can yeah, check get out some broccoli fingers. and cheese. All right. Well, that's it, guys. Thank you so much. And we'll be back next time on the Romper Room on Conspiranormal. I'm Mother Effing Color Me Bad.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.